Amen. Good to see you today. And before we uh, get into the word, we have the special privilege of bringing little Madison Marie Alton to the Lord to dedicate her. So if her parents will bring her up, she is so cute today. Look at that little treasure. Threw a shoe already. Oh. <laughs> it's down there. Here, I got it. I got it. Yep, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this little angel. Come here. Come here. I was trying to convince her I'm not a doctor, really. Yeah. Look at all your, look at your family down there. Isn't you're a sweet girl? Yeah. She looks so cute. Yeah. Good girl. Yep, find that thumb and we'll be good. You can't believe, Madison, what a mess all those people are. They're here because they're really a mess. Me too, but we'll get through this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this precious little girl. And We hold a beautiful little life like this and we can believe in the future because we see your goodness as you present a gift like this to us. And I know how she's changed her parents' lives and her grandparents and everyone else and She's such a gift, and that's just going to get better and better. But we want your hand to be on her as she grows. Help her to always know that she's loved, that she's special. I pray that you would prepare her in every way to make the contributions that you designed her to make to this world. She makes the world a better place just by being in it. So guide her and lead her. Help her to always know how special she is to you and to those around. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that wasn't bad. See, that wasn't bad. No poking or prodding. Yeah. She's pretty chill. I think I'll just keep her. <laughs> oh, she gave Daddy a smile. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, big yawn. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Why? Well, I'm not going to take you again. Don't worry. It's okay. <laughs> That's special. <laughs> well, you know, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. It was the, the book that one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, wrote to tell the story of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. And it's been a great journey, but we're getting to the end of the life of Jesus. In fact, chapter 26, which is the, where, we're, where we are today, is the longest chapter, second longest chapter in the New Testament. Luke 1 is longer, and then Matthew 26. 75 verses, and it all happens on one day. This is what happened to Jesus on the last day of his life before he died. And his life was just crammed full of stuff. But what I want you to sense is I'd like to suggest that you use your imagination a little bit to think of how Jesus must have felt on that day, on this day. Put yourself in his place. We, we talk about having a relationship with Jesus, and that's really important. But the only way that you can have a relationship with a person is if you have empathy for them. And so I'm suggesting that as we read this story of what happened to Jesus on this 
the last day here, that you would try to imagine yourself in that place, connect with him in ways that you can go, I kind of know how that feels in some ways. And so it might be a stretch for you, but that's the way to read biography, to be able to see, okay, what would it have felt like to be him? So let's go through Matthew chapter 26. And I learned in first service, I went way too long and we have communion today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep the pace going, but I'm not promising anything. We may just go right into third service. But <laughs> in Matthew 26, all of this happened basically on the Passover. The Passover was a big deal to the Jews. It was when annually they would celebrate when they were set free from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, after 400 years of captivity, and they became the children of Israel, really. They became the people that they were. And so the Passover was something that they celebrated every year to commemorate that. But it was also a picture of an ultimate sacrifice that, in fact, Jesus would be. And so the connection of Jesus with the Passover, he had tried to explain it. People didn't really get it. But these Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus. They were threatened by him, thought he would ruin their gig. And so they, in the first few verses, they said, we need to kill this guy. But we can't do it there in verse 5, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They understood that if they killed Jesus on Passover, people would go, wow, that's a fulfillment of Scripture. He's the Passover lamb. And so their plan was we're going to kill him anytime but Passover. But you find out how little control they had because, in fact, they would kill him on the Passover. Now, the way the Jews count their days, when the sun goes down, that starts a new day. So the Passover started when the sun, went, the sun set, and then it would go through all the way until the sun would set the next day. The Passover lamb would be sacrificed. Passover meal would be eaten that evening, Passover sacrifice would happen at three o'clock in the afternoon the next day so that it would be finished before Passover ended. In fact, Jesus was sacrificed exactly at that time. That's, they wanted anything else to happen but that, but that's what happened. So now, as we begin to look at this chapter, the first thing that happens, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but beginning with verse 6 on down through um, verse 15, or 16 really. Jesus is staying at the house of Mary and Martha. So he's, he is, they lived up in, in Cana. It was just like just above the Mount of Olives away from the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus lived up north in the Galilee area. So when he would come down often, he would stay with them. But it says that he was there in Bethany, which is where they lived. But he was actually at a dinner at the house of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him and had an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she began to anoint him. Now, this, in the other Gospels, we find out this, Mary, this, this woman was actually Mary, the one who... When Jesus would teach, she would sit at his feet while her sister Martha would be up taking care of everything. So she had a special relationship with him. She had this 
flask that uh, we believe historically that women would keep this really valuable ointment and save it for their wedding. So she got hers, she was single, and she got hers, and she began to anoint Jesus with it. And people were scandalized. So here's Jesus. Somebody really loves him, but he knows he's not going to be around. She is giving him this extravagant gift, and the disciples started going, this is, this is unfair, this is wrong, this is, we could sell this ointment, and give a lot of stuff to the poor. Now in another gospel, in John's gospel, we find out it was actually Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, who was so concerned about the poor. Because like so many charities, he wanted to get his cut. And so he's like, oh, I care about the poor, really. Now he wanted his percentage that he would take from the prophet. But they thought that what Jesus was doing was scandalous. The kind of relationship that he as a holy man, he as a single man, a connection that he would have with a woman in this way, treating him this way, they were shocked. But how did Jesus feel? It's like, I'm about to die. And here, somebody gets it. Everybody else is thinking, oh, what about the poor? What about this? Or what about that? They're shocked that I would have this special connection with a woman, they care more about that than they care about the fact that I'm about to die. And here one person seems to get it. You ever been in a place where you just felt completely misunderstood or misjudged? You ever been in a place where it seemed like, and and maybe someone gave you an extravagant gift. Usually we give gifts, you know, and you kind of make a deal, you give me this and I'll give you this, and now it's just, oh, here are gift certificates, and they just sit there, nobody spends them. And nobody. But if somebody gives you a gift that makes you uncomfortable, like, wow, you spent a lot. Now, what I get you is a little, and, I'm, and there's that awkwardness around gift giving. But to be totally okay with saying she is taking her, a part of what she would have spent as a bride, and she's pouring it on me. And it made him feel really special. But it also had to make him feel kind of weird that everybody else is saying, it'd be like if someone got you an extravagant gift and you're opening it and you're like, I'm blown away. And somebody else is going, why did you waste that much on him, on her? What, what, what are you thinking? You'd be like, wow, that's, they don't think I'm worth it, but somebody does. So your mixed emotions, that's kind of... Jesus here, and he told them, look, you're always going to have poor, but this woman, what she's done, it'll be told as a memorial to her. People will never forget this temporary, what seems like a waste. They, she did this, and it's going to, they're going to be telling the story for a long time. How many gifts that you've received were wasteful, but you'll never forget them? Um, I don't know. You know, different people. Have, I remember some friends of ours one time said, hey, we want to take you out. And we're like, okay, great. And then they took us to this place, and we get in a helicopter. We're flying all over Orange County, and then it lands at this restaurant. And it was like, that was so unusual. I'll never forget it. 
they're long since divorced and remarried, and I still have the memories of the helicopter ride. So, and Ann and I are still married after you know 40 years later. So, but what gift was that extravagant? Then you understand how he's feeling. But when you put it in the context of this is the last gift he will ever receive, and people are thinking he shouldn't get it, people are thinking that it's a waste. That had to be kind of weird. So then. His buddy Judas went to, this is one of the 12 guys that had lived with him for the last three years. Jesus had fed him, had taken care of him, had comforted him when he was hurting. He traveled with Jesus. Most of Jesus' life in ministry was spent walking different places. Judas was always with him. Now he goes to the Jewish religious leaders and said, I'm going to sell Jesus out to you. I'm going to help you bust him. And why? For 30 pieces of silver, 30 silver coins. This is probably a couple hundred bucks by today's standards. It's like he sold them out for next to nothing. Why would he do that? This was the amount of money that you would pay to buy a slave that you weren't sure if they were healthy or not or could do anything. This was also about a month's wages for a laborer. So for a pittance, Jesus knew that this was happening. Judas makes this deal, and then Jesus still lets him hang out with him. You ever been in a place where you knew somebody was kind of stabbing you in the back, but then you're kind of together in a situation, and you you try to act like you don't know, but it's hard. It's hard to know what you know and still just like, sit back on it. But that's what Jesus was going through here. And then finally, it's the time for the Passover. You can read this for yourself, beginning with verse um, 17, that Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which was the precursor to the Passover feast. Jesus told the guys, go find an apartment, told them where to go to get it, and then we'll celebrate the Passover together. For the Jews, holidays were a big deal. I mean, Different people are different, in, certainly in our culture. Like for me, I don't care that much about holidays, to be honest with you. I, it probably, back when I was a kid, I remember one time, I was like 10, and my mom goes, oh, it's, it was like the end of July. My mom goes, David, you, don't you have a birthday coming up? I go, it was two weeks ago. Nobody noticed. Nobody remembered. I didn't remember either, and I didn't care. I'm not telling you that to go, oh, poor Dave. It might be why I'm so messed up and not celebrating that much. I had bad, you know, uh, one of my first Christmases, I remember all the whole family, all the relatives getting together, and all the men went out to a bar and got in a fight and came back. And it was like I loved the story, but nobody else was happy about it. But, so I don't know what brings you to this point, but for the Jews, their holidays were everything. They couldn't wait. Every year, everyone would come together and have these great celebrations. And to celebrate the Passover, to remember that after 400 years of being slaves, now we are free. Man, they all came to town. They all wanted to celebrate. And so Jesus began to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. But then in the middle of the meal... And we also know at this time that he had washed their feet. Matthew doesn't tell us that story. But it was an intimate time. But when it was evening, he sat down 
And as they were eating, he said in verse 21, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He said, yep, one of you guys is going to stab me in the back, is going to sell me out, is going to try to get me killed. And it's kind of awkward. There's only 12 of them. And it's like, so they're all like, wait, is it me? I mean, you should know if it's not you. But he said, the one who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And he isn't pointing out one guy, Judas. But he's just saying, the guy that does it is so close to me that we're eating this meal together. And so, and then he said, the Son of Man indeed goes like it's written, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Be better if he had not been born. Ultimately, Judas, Judas even covers, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you said it. Like, I don't know, is it? But he's like, it's going to be this close and he's selling me out. What would that feel like? Your best friends are at a table and you know that one of them has already made a deal to help you to be dead. And you're trying to go, other than that, how was the Passover? <laughs> you know, it's like so awkward and uncomfortable. And really for everyone, and even the fact, I mean, I think what would bother me if I was Jesus is all the disciples are like, wait, is it me? Like, you don't know that it's not you? What in the world are you thinking? And then the guy who already did the deal is like, is it I? He must have felt like such cognitive dissonance. Like, these are my best friends. This is our greatest celebration. Here we are. I am about to save the world. And these are my buddies. Nice. But... Then he invented what we call communion. He took the cup and he said, this cup, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he goes, I'm not going to drink this again with you until I come in my father's kingdom. So he invented communion. We will celebrate communion today. We always do on the first Sunday of the month. We we generally do it at together, which we did last Wednesday. Um, to me, when there's communion, it's always special. I never feel like, oh, yeah, communion, okay, here we go, this is it. Because it's something that for 2,000 years, the church everywhere, I don't care what your church believes about almost anything, the church that follows Jesus says communion along with baptism those are the two most special times. Well, Jesus invented it right here with these guys. But it's about his death. This bread, it's my body that's going to be broken for you. This cup is my blood that's going to be shed for you. And they're like, okay. They're just like eating it. They're not thinking anything special about it really. And then they sung a hymn. In verse 30, and went out to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine singing with Jesus? Like a hymn that they knew together, probably one of the Psalms. And here's Jesus knowing what he's going to go through in just hours. And he's like singing along with them. Singing with other people is something that can really bind you together. You know, if you're driving and a song comes on, and you're like singing it together, there's this connection. 
I mean, I, with all of my grandkids, I've always sang um, Jesus loves me and Jesus loves the little children when I'm getting them to sleep. It turns out my youngest, um, Amelia, actually prefers Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. So I kind of go into that eventually. <laughs> but it's like this connection with people through a hymn. And they did, and they went out into the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place just outside. You know, if when you live in the city, you can't get out in the country very easily. And if you were there in Jerusalem, it's pretty stark. But there's this one little garden of olive trees that's just outside the east side of the city. And that's where he would go to get along. Maybe that's your backyard. Maybe that's a park down the street. But there's a place where you go and you experience some solitude. And that's where he led them. And he said, by the way, all you guys are going to bail on me. I already said one of you is going to betray me. Fact is, none of you should be all cocky because you're not going to betray me because you're all going to turn your backs. You're all going to run away. What if you knew that by later on tonight, you would lose all your friends, that they would all turn their backs on you? Jesus is just saying it, and he's not like saying it to get sympathy. He's just going, just so you guys know. I'm telling you in advance, but how lonely that must have felt. See, Jesus had lived his life with people. He came to become a human, to be a part of human society. Everywhere he went, it was like he fed 5,000 people. He fed 4,000 people. He goes to a wedding and turned water into wine. He healed people everywhere. He preached to a mountainside full of people. Here, just previously, we saw his Olivet Discourse as he preached. He was around people. But now he's saying, you know what? You're all going to check out. You're all going to bail. And Peter said, I don't, I'm not surprised about these other guys. But for me, he said, even in verse 33, if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. He's like, yep, these other guys, not me. And Jesus said, look, before you hear in the morning, in the early morning, the rooster crow, you're going to deny me three times. As he said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter goes, no way, man. You're wrong, Jesus. I will die for you. I will never deny you. Of course, the other disciples are like, yeah, no, we won't either. What's that like for Jesus? He knew. He's telling the truth. These are the guys he's depending on. So he came with them to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he was open with them. He was vulnerable. He said to them, my soul, this is verse 38, is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He's like, I need you guys right now. I feel like I'm dying before I die. I am in agony. I am in misery. And I just need a friend. So can you guys hang in? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got you. And he went and fell on his face. And he prayed. And he said, oh, my father, if it's possible, 
Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays a prayer that says, Father, I don't want to do what I know is about to happen. If there's any other way that you could save people rather than for me to be dealt with in this way, please do it. You ever been in a place where you're, you kind of know what's coming, but you like, just don't want it to come? You're, maybe you're like, th- you're, you hear that you're going to get fired and they just haven't called you in yet. And you're like, do I pray that they won't fire me? I'm pretty sure they're going to fire me. Okay, God, please help me not to be fired, but whatever you want, be there for me. There are so many times when you have a loved one who everything tells you that they are dying and you keep thinking of miracles and you keep wanting something to happen that's going to make it different. And you know some guy somewhere who that happened. Like, okay, yeah, you have this cancer really bad. I had the same cancer. And God just touched me when I sent a bunch of money to some evangelist. And boom, I'm fine. I got healed of a disease I didn't even know I had. And it's like, have you ever been in a place where you're like, I want to believe that so much, but I'm pretty much... It's not looking like that's going to happen. It's not looking like they're going to make it or I'm going to make it. To be torn in prayer is the only really honest prayer that there is. Prayer is not you doing magic to make things happen the way you want them to. Prayer is you like Jesus coming and going, I don't want this to happen. I can see it coming. I don't want it, God. But if it's what's going to happen, it's going to happen. So Jesus prayed this, and then he goes back to his buddies who had his back, and they were all asleep. And he said to Peter, what? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? You couldn't even, like, pray for me as I'm praying for an hour? But it was a long night. He goes, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A second time, he went away, and he prayed the exact same prayer. He is in agony. And what if you were praying something, really struggling through it, and there were people there who were like, we'll be right here praying for you. And you hear them snoring as you're finishing your prayer. Well, that happened to him. And then it happened a third time. prayed the same thing. His buddies fell asleep every single time. And finally, he just, he prayed, and He said, well, you guys are still sleeping, fine. Go ahead and sleep. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's get going. My betrayer is at hand. And then we see Judas. Judas, who had lived with Jesus. Judas, who had expressed his love to Jesus. Judas, who had just, in front of everybody, said, oh, I'm not going to sell you out when he already had that Judas. (laughs) He comes to Jesus in order to show, and and it wasn't the Roman soldiers that came after Jesus, it was the Jewish temple guard. It It would be like if the church security guards came after you. And they came, and Judas comes and kisses Jesus. Because he said, oh, I'll kiss the guy, and then you'll know he's the guy. I mean, you've probably been kissed by people who were Judases, maybe, but you didn't figure it out until later. Jesus knew ahead of time. This is the deal. This is what's happening. But amazingly, even as, you know, he was betrayed, 
he called him friend. He said, friend, why have you come? To be that kind of guy who says, just because you're not acting like a friend, I still consider you a friend. Does that make it feel better? Oh, it would always be easier to get betrayed by an enemy. You expect that. But I would, I would propose to you that the greatest pain you've ever felt in your life came from friends who betrayed you, friends who let you down. And that's what Jesus is going through. Man, I did everything for this guy. I fed him, I clothed him, I, I was there, taught him, I, I knew all about his fit, family history, everything else. He's burning me. And so these guys got him. Well, first, Peter pulled the sword out and tried to be tough, and he cut a guy's ear off, and Jesus healed his ear. It doesn't tell all that here, but Jesus said, hey, we're not going to fight. Scripture is going to be fulfilled if this happens. And then he said to the guys, the, these Jewish um, henchmen, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. You could have grabbed me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then, the end of verse 46, 56, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now you're heading off to a fake trial where it's all set up and rigged and you're going to be killed. And your friends, they bail on you. I'm sure you've had that happen. Where something, if everything's going right, oh yeah, we have friends. But as soon as things go wrong and you're not popular for one reason or another, boom, where are they? They're gone. Jesus had to have been feeling like, oh, I mean, I knew this was going to happen, but how heartbreaking. Again, your friends are the only ones that can hurt you that deeply. An enemy can only hurt you so much. But man, a friend, you're vulnerable to them, and they can do a lot of damage. So they took Jesus, and as you read, they took him to the high priest, I mean, this wasn't even legal, this phony trial that they did. But they brought fake witnesses, and they started beating Jesus and humiliating him and making fun of him. And this was like a precursor. This is in the middle of the night. This was supposed to be just tried before the Romans. But they made their own kangaroo court. They hired witnesses to, to say he did things that he didn't do. And he endures the rest of the evening like this. And after reading about that, we hear that Peter had been watching from a distance. And it says in verse 69, a servant girl came up to Peter and said, weren't you with Jesus of Galilee? And he denied it before everyone and said, I don't know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I swear, I don't know the man. A little later, some other people came and said, you have a Galilean accent. Your speech betrays you. I know that you're one of them. And then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. One of the other gospels tells us, Jesus looked over at him at this point. The rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times 
and he went away and wept bitterly. Now Jesus is going to face, as we will see next week in the next chapter, the rest of his torture and killing. But how do you feel if you're Jesus? He's a human. How do you feel if your friends have betrayed you? If others deny you, your best friends, Peter, the first disciple that you ever picked, he was the OG disciple, and he's saying he doesn't even know you. And you're being trumped, uh, trumped up charges. There are no witnesses to defend you. You are being gutted in front of the people who, some of these Jewish leaders, when you were 12, you were at the temple and you were talking theology with them. And now they're doing this and you've always been respectful to them. What in the world is going on? How in the world, if you're Jesus, could you even deal with that pain and that agony? But also why? You know, we believe that, and there are different theories of the atonement, but basically we believe what the scriptures say, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again the third day. And salvation comes through him. So we know somehow Jesus' death paid for our sins, made it possible for us to know God. But why did he have to go through all this? Why couldn't he just come, die a peaceful death, rise from the dead, and then we're fine? Why does he have to go through chapter 26? Why does he have to go through all of that pain? And I've wondered about that a lot. Like, well, why couldn't have made it a little easier? He didn't have to be spit on. He doesn't have to be treated this way. That when they beat him, when they spit on him, when his friends stabbed him in the back, when he was betrayed, none of that is what saved us. It was just his death, right? But then as I was thinking about that and I was reading, and you don't have to turn over there, but the book of Hebrews, which I believe was written by Paul, explains some of this in a way that is at the very least really profound. It doesn't necessarily make me feel better about it, but in Hebrews 2, he said, it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or mature through sufferings. Somehow his sufferings equipped him for doing what he did. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then later in the same chapter, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make payment for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. In order for Jesus to save us, to be our high priest, he had to suffer what we have suffered. I don't profess to understand all of that, But this is what the scriptures tell us. And later on in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, We have a real high priest who has passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let's come boldly before the throne of grace. He goes on to say, every high priest connects people with God. But... He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. And in chapter 5, verse 8, 
Though he was a son, always, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him. That's amazing. Jesus could save us because he experienced what we experienced. Because he understood what it was like to be in the situation that we're in. Because nothing that you ever feel is something that he can't relate to. And later on in, in uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, it says, Therefore, he is also able to, suffer, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why can he save us? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Salvation is not just you get your ticket stamped for heaven, you're good to go. Jesus died, your sins are forgiven, it's over. According to what Hebrews teaches us, Jesus had to go through everything we've gone through, and the only way that we are saved is because he continues to intercede for us. He continues to be our priest. He lives forever to make intercession. You've heard that, but what does it mean? That somehow, a thousand years from now, when I'm in heaven, he's still going to be alive and he's still going to be my intercessor. I don't understand all of this. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But what I'm certain of is that Jesus was able to save us because he experienced the kinds of stuff that we experience. So when we look at this scripture in Matthew 26, and we imagine what it was like to be him, we are finding a key to why he is able to save us. But why do we have to go through all this garbage? Why do we have to suffer? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm not going to turn over there, but Paul said that we have been comforted. The word there is parakaleo. Somebody comes alongside to help us with the same stuff that comforts us. He says, in the same way that Jesus comes alongside us and says, I understand your pain, in the same way we have the opportunity to come alongside others. And that completes the picture for me. In the book of Revelation, three different places, it talks about Christians as being priests. A priest is somebody who says, let me build a bridge for you. From where you are, I understand your pain, and I want to bring you to the one who can rescue you from that pain. And that makes all of this, for me, make so much more sense. Jesus experienced the worst of the worst so that we could always know he gets how I feel. Whatever it is that you're suffering, whatever it is you're going through right now, maybe it's loneliness, maybe you, somebody that you trusted stabbed you in the back, or maybe a marriage broke up, or kids don't want to talk to you, or you lost your job, or you know there are people who have been gossiping about you, you thought they were your friends and they aren't. Maybe there were people that at one time were like with you. This is a part of life, right? I mean, I, I always talk about the people that come to me and go, hey, we've been coming to your church now for a couple weeks, and I just want you to know, this is my church. I'm going to be here from now on. You can count on me. I'm like, I give them a couple weeks. Because then, then they figure out who I am, and they're like, 
okay, I like you being honest. I just don't like you being honest about something that makes me uncomfortable about me. I love it if you're making fun of other people. And, and so it's like I don't, when somebody says, oh, Dave, you've just, you're the greatest pastor. I totally appreciate that, but I'm not counting on it. Because, and you'll find this in your life too, the people who hurt you the most are your best friends, are the people who you thought you could count on. And Jesus goes, I totally get that. Because I went through this with my disciples. Now, what do you do? Do you take that knowledge and look for ways that you can come alongside somebody else so that when they think they're suffering alone, that you can just go, I get it. Jesus gets it too. I'll be here with you. And I'll do my best to let you know you're not alone. It's, I mean, life is painful. It never goes the way we want. Most of our prayers should be, but I know you're probably not going to do that, so let your will be done like Jesus prayed. Life hurts. But if there's something that makes life worthwhile, it's understanding that when I hurt, I am being more connected to Jesus And I'm also having an opportunity to possibly be an intercessory connection to let people know that they aren't alone, that I can provide that for them. This week, your pain is your own. You're going through some things that probably no one really understands or knows about. You're afraid. You wouldn't just like share them with anybody because they make you really vulnerable. We all have our stuff that we're dealing with. But we can always know he gets it. I mean, I had a week where one day this week I had to go to a, I got shut into this little room and somebody who I think was trained at a CIA black site had me upside down in a chair, a light in my eyes and they're waterboarding me and okay, it was a, it was a dentist. But, um, <laughs> and then ripping on my face going, relax your lip. I'm like, what are you talking about? But, I mean, at least Jesus dying at 33 never really had to deal with old people tooth stuff. But (laughs) you go through stuff. And probably people are going to laugh at you when you tell them about it. Or they'll tell you their story. I've been way worse than that. Wait till you have this happen or wait till. But ultimately, when we look at Jesus and we can use our imagination enough to imagine what it was like to be him then he was doing that so that he would have the imagination necessary for him to understand what you are going through. That might sound weird to you, but read the book of Hebrews and tell me that's not the truth, that that's not what the Bible teaches. But the redeeming element is there are times when after you come through it, now you're able to understand what somebody else is going through. And that actually makes you feel like you didn't suffer for nothing. That what you went through, in the end, there's an element of redemption that can come just from that. Life is painful. This week may be painful. I hope hope it's not. I hope this week is just a week that goes exactly like, you know, you want it to go. Um, And if it is, it's going to be because you totally don't know what's going on. But great. But in the overall scheme of things, 
Jesus understands the worst things you're wrestling with, and he is allowing you to experience that pain to make you useful to somebody else. There's no other reason for us to be alive once we become Christians, if it's not to be there for somebody else. And, and that's what he commissions us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we look at the gracious way that you suffered. I mean, if we were you, we would have killed those disciples a long time ago and got some new ones. But Lord, you're so kind. And you knew that all of your pain was preparing you to do what we desperately needed to do. We had to know that pain can be endured that betrayal can be survived, that there's life after tears. And so thank you, not just for dying for us, but for suffering so that we would have someone who understands. Please teach us in our lives to embrace the suffering because we know when we hurt, that's a part of the formula to make our life meaningful as we can then be there for others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today and always on the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion. When you came in, you probably got one of these little cups. If you didn't get one, raise your hand and ushers will come and give you one. But when Jesus here, right in this chapter, on the Passover, before he died, he took the bread and he said, This bread that I'm breaking is my body that's going to be broken for you. This cup that I'm pouring out is my blood that's going to be shed for you. I want you to always remember me as the one who suffered and died for you. I want you to remember my pain because, frankly, life is going to feel like that sometimes. And I just want you to know you're not alone. And so throughout almost 2,000 years of church history, Christians have shared, no matter what denomination they are, baptism and communion are the two that everyone understands. Communion, the most precious. And I'm sure for the disciples, from then on, they made communion a big deal because it took them back to Jesus explaining. Not that this somehow magically turns into his body. That would be cannibalism, and he wouldn't have done that. It would be a violation of the law. But it's saying, I don't want you to forget this. My loving you is as real as the taste of that wafer in your mouth, the taste of that juice on your tongue. And you are a part of me, and I don't want you to ever forget that. Now, if you're here and you've never committed your life to Jesus, you don't know where you stand with him, communion is really cool. Because it's the basics. It's basically saying, I want to be a part of everybody else who says, we're not going to talk about other issues. We're going to simply talk about the fact that God loves me. Jesus died for me. He gave himself for me to give my pain a meaning and to give me hope for the future. And if that sounds like something that you want in your life, all you have to do when you take the elements, eat the bread, Drink the cup and tell him in your heart, I'm receiving you. If you've never done that or if you've done it a thousand times, 
We're all in this together in the same way, at the same place. Nate's going to lead us in a song now, and then we'll all partake together.